Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you have been blessed to have a mentor in your life? Maybe a parent, a relative, someone from church, a teacher, coach, co-worker, boss. Those kinds of relationships are God's gift to us. Whoever came to mind as you thought about a mentor that God has given to you. Um, one of the things I know in my own life when I've had mentors, uh, I've invited them to speak freely, uh, to encourage and correct and sometimes point out areas of growth, maybe challenges that I wasn't even aware of. And I remember maybe a dozen years ago, um, we were going through a hard season at another church uh, that I was serving. It was kind of when the housing market crashed. And so there was a, everyone was going through a hard time. And our church was laying off a lot of staff because we needed to downsize. Um, and I was just generally frustrated. Um, I was grumpy about uh, the folks in our church, kind of some of their attitudes and actions. Um, I was grumpy about the season that we were in, grumpy about working in the church. And I was venting uh, to a mentor, a retired priest. And rather than indulge me, um, he shared some wisdom. Uh, for one of his mentors, uh, Dallas Willard. And uh, I'll share the advice just kind of as a freebie this morning. Uh, maybe it can help you out. Um, he said that everyone, as you think about any position uh, that you have, uh, first you're going to have a vocation. You're going to have a calling uh, from God. Frederick Beekner once described that as the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's the good stuff. That's the sweet spot. And then he informed me, as a good mentor would, that any employment we have, in addition to being a calling, uh, there's going to be a job component to it. And that job component are the things we need to do to meet our obligations, uh, pay our bills, keep things on track, uh, things like your inbox at work that you have to stay on top of. Um, and then here's the, here's the, the pay dirt, the mentor wisdom. He said that uh, almost everywhere you work, any position you have, really even a volunteer position, paid position, whatever it is, there's going to be this overlapping Venn diagram. And parts of it are going to line up with your calling, and it's going to be satisfactory, and you're going to be like, this is the good stuff, the sweet spot. And other parts of it are going to have a job component, uh, things that you don't enjoy, uh, things that you have to kind of make yourself do, and he said, instead of being frustrated with the parts of my position that felt like a job, uh, he's like, could you take a moment and have gratitude for where you get to live out your calling? Because every position is going to have both of these. Um, and uh, again, I'll never forget that. It really helped. Actually, we would bring folks on our church staff who had been in the marketplace. And it really helped them actually understand working at a church because we said, hey, there's going to be a part of this that is calling and it is wonderful and it will, it will scratch that itch that you have to serve the Lord. And, and then there's email. Um, and there's just stuff that you've got to do as part of the job. Um, and again, instead of being frustrated with the parts that feel like a job, could you um, look at it through the lens of being grateful 
uh, for how you get to live out your calling uh, through that. Um, and, and for me, that's been advice I've passed on to a number of folks that stuck with me. I don't even know if my mentor realizes how important uh, that conversation was, that it would stick with me uh, 12 years down the line. But that's what good mentors do. Um, they're with you in the trenches. They're sitting beside you. They're having meaningful conversations with you. They're trying to help you develop and grow, not just indulging you um, when you're frustrated or uh, when things are hard. And I bring that up because we are going to be, uh, this is actually our fourth week with the pastoral epistles. Those are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. We've done three weeks in 1 Timothy, and now we're going to switch over and do about four weeks in 2 Timothy. And this is a mentor's letter to his protege. Uh, Paul is the mentor. Timothy is his uh, young protege. And you'll notice that. You'll see uh, that it's warm, it's personal, it's relational, it's patient, but it's also clear and directive. Uh, Paul has some things he wants to specifically pass on uh, to Timothy. And we can actually just read his mail and glean wisdom. Uh, we can benefit from this mentored relationship. Um, and this is a little bit, if you notice a different tone, uh, in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul had left. Timothy was in charge temporarily in Ephesus. Paul gives him instructions until he gets back. It's like, hey, here's how to actually hold down the fort until I return. Um, 2 Timothy, it's completely changed. Because at this point in Paul's life, uh, he is in a Roman prison for what he can tell is the last time. Instead of, hey, hold the fort down, I'm going to be back, he's telling Timothy, I'm never going to see you again. And here's what I want to pass on to you, uh, who has been like a spiritual son to me. Uh, again, his protege. And so in many ways, this is about handing on the baton of leadership. He's passing something on. And we're going to talk about that process of how do you transmit? How do you pass on uh, really the baton of faith? Uh, but then also, as Paul talks about that, he's always interested in what's being passed. So he focuses on the gospel. And we'll see that this morning as well in 2 Timothy. Um, the first few verses of 2 Timothy, it's just letting us know this is a letter. Uh, it's fairly standard from Paul uh, to Timothy. There's a personal note. Timothy, my beloved child, um, Paul's probably having a secretary help him write this because he's in prison, again, for probably the final time. And could you imagine what a mentor would want to say to someone for the last time? It's going to be clarifying. He's going to be focused. These are the things that are the most important things for Timothy to remember because Paul won't get to speak to him again. And he wants Timothy to remain loyal and faithful and fervent. He's worried that when Timothy encounters suffering and opposition and the potential shame, uh, maybe even the shame associated with being connected to Paul, um, that he won't stand firm in the faith. Uh, we get the idea that maybe there was a bit of timidness uh, to Timothy, or he was hesitant to assume or at least assert uh, his leadership. Um, and that's why I do think this is so helpful for those, uh, especially maybe if you're young or um, young in the faith or maybe in a new position of leadership or responsibility, um, any of these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, are full of practical application um, and wisdom, not just for church leaders. And so let's talk about this uh, passing of the baton that we see, um, I think, really clearly in verses uh, 3 uh, through 5. 
And uh, what he's looking at, in many ways, is Timothy's lifelong formation in the faith. And we even get a glimpse of Paul's lifelong formation in the faith, which is fun, because we often think of Paul as the ultimate convert on the road to Damascus. (laughs) And he lets us know that doesn't occur in a vacuum. Um, There's a long spiritual lineage that Paul is part of. Lifelong formation is multi-layered, it's complex, it's highly relational. And so the first relationship on display is Paul and Timothy, Um, like a spiritual father and a spiritual son. Verse 3, he's like, hey, Timothy, you're on my prayer list. As long as I'm here in the prison, as long as I'm alive, I'm praying for you. Uh, Verse 4 tells us that Timothy wept the last time they parted. He was sad to see him go. And Paul just gently says, man, I I wish I could see you again. Uh, That's the depth of their relationship. That's the depth of uh, this mentor uh, spiritual friendship. Uh, so that Paul could be filled with joy and uh, refreshed in the Lord. Paul mentions that he is serving the Lord with a clear conscience, which is great because he's in prison. <laughs> so I've got a clear conscience. Uh, I'm innocent before the Lord, and I'm serving him just as my ancestors did. And Timothy, uh, his faith doesn't occur in a vacuum either. Uh, verse 5, uh, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And I just want to pause here uh, for a moment. This is one of those verses that I think we can run by because these names, um, they're maybe not as popular as they once were. Do we have any Loises or Eunices? I don't want to overly offend you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, they're, they're kind of old-fashioned names, right? We don't, we don't have those all the time. Um, I think probably if these were better names, you would see uh, nurseries with this verse kind of scripted uh, on the walls or maybe uh, of elementary schools or something because it's a beautiful verse. Uh, We see and are reminded that one of our first places of formation is just the home. Uh, We see here that there was a faith that dwelt in Timothy's mother, a faith that dwelt uh, in his grandmother, and they've passed it on Uh, to Timothy. Um, There's a a, a sense in which the home is the primary and first place of formation. Um, And I find that interesting because in the last decade or so, um, you may have noticed that there's been a documented crisis of uh, those raised in the church leaving the church. Um, It depends who you read. Uh, Father Bill is our statistician and a social scientist, so he could correct the, the metrics on this. Uh, but it's, it's something like 80% um, of those who have been raised in churches in the last decades have left uh, church. Now, we've got some UGA students here. Um, if you turn in a test and you get 80% wrong, um, <laughs> what's that mean? Uh, you failed. <laughs> um, I've actually been surprised that more churches have not said, hey, maybe we need to go back to the drawing board because we're getting a one in five success rate with a precious uh, minimum, you know, these these young people that we've been entrusted with as a stewardship to the Lord, we're batting uh, 200. That's not good. Um, Do you know the number one reason they have figured out that most of these young adults have left the faith? It's the disconnect that they see at home. 
between the faith that their parents profess and the lives that their parents lead. Um, and I've actually, the little bit I've read on it says that one of the worst things is parents who have kind of a spiritual mask at church and keep that spiritual mask on at home instead of dealing with reality, instead of growing in their faith and being honest uh, with their kids. And if you are a parent, grandparent, I don't want you to hear that and get overly anxious about it. It's not about perfection here. It's how are you growing faithfully and sharing that with your kids, uh, with your grandkids? Because um, you're passing something on. Um, we're always being formed. We're being formed in intentional ways. We're being formed unintentionally. Uh, if you've got someone in your home, you're forming one another uh, in intentional ways and in unintentional ways. And it's just a reminder uh, to think this through. And for me, the most obvious thing I see, even thinking about dear Lois and Eunice here, is you can't pass on what you don't possess. Um, they were rooted in the faith. They had grown in the faith, and they were able to pass that on um, and to, to pass the baton um, and it's not an either-or here. You have Paul and Timothy, that's a spiritual mentorship, a spiritual parenthood. You have Lois and Eunice, that's the family of origin formation. And uh, in an in a ideal setting, both of those are working in harmony. Um, there is a formation in the home that's raising our youngest disciples in the faith, and there are other adult mentors, spiritual fathers and mothers, uh, coming alongside them and helping to lead them uh, into maturity, helping them out. Um, and I, I would say, if we're going to kind of think about our methods, well, I don't think Paul reached Timothy by being cool or hip. Um, just, <laughs> in fact, one of the first things Paul did with Timothy was to circumcise him. Um, that'd be a terrible youth group game. You don't want to do that. <laughs> that would not work at all. But Paul had something deeper and richer on offer uh, for Timothy. And um, a friend, actually, who he writes for Christianity Today occasionally, um, wrote an article years ago called From Relevant Dude to Spiritual Father. Um, I was reminded of it when we actually moved here to plant because I went from being the young person at an older church to, hey, we're moving to a college town where we're going to be old, um, which is still a new experience, but that's okay. Um, here's what he wrote in this article. I want to share it with you this morning. It says that while boomers want their church leaders relevant, competent, and efficient, a new generation is looking for a different kind of minister. It says at my church, 80% of adults are under 40. And they seem to want me firm, mature, and relationally present, even if I'm uncool. And Lord help him, he's one of the least cool pastors I've ever met. <laughs> um, just, um, man. Uh, but he says, in short, they want me to be a spiritual father. And for some, I'm the Christian dad they never had. For others, I'm the father figure who's here now. Um, he serves at a church near a university. And so there's a lot of students and grad school students there. And he says that since the third century, we've actually had a, a way of doing this. We've had terms for this. Uh, the church is called these spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Um, and, and that's just a role that really depends on three things. One, uh, spiritual maturity. I think one of the reasons we've had trouble passing on the faith is a lack of maturity of what to pass on. So there's a spiritual maturity born of prayer and experience. Um, second, there's uh, an intimate knowledge of another person's life and spiritual condition. You have to know somebody. 
You have to slow down long enough to get to know them, to get to know uh, their temperament, their circumstances, their tendencies. And then third is an ability to speak the truth in love um, in a personal way, uh, in a way that it can be heard and to be helpful. Um, That's how historically the church has passed on the faith. We've seen those raised in the home, and so there's family discipleship, and then we've seen spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers come alongside and help folks mature. It's, a, it's beautiful, really. Um, and it's also costly, like any kind of parenting. Um, you can't, this is not the kind of thing that you can just pick it up and put it down when the mood strikes you. Um, you don't set an out of office email on being a spiritual father or mother. Um, hey, thanks for writing. I'll see you in four weeks. Uh, we'll see how that thing is going. Um, it takes time and effort and love, and it's messy, and there's conflict, and it can get hard, and it can be um, costly. It's not a program. It's not a class at church. It's a way to think about mentoring and disciple-making. Um, and, and for most of us, as you consider this, um, and as you consider a book like Second Timothy, uh, most of us should look to have some kind of a Paul in our life who is shaping us, who's pouring into us, who's mentoring us. And if you have that, uh, give thanks. Um, And if you don't, start praying about it. Um, And it might mean you make a really awkward ask (laughs) to someone say, hey, it feels like we might have something in common because we have coffee regularly. Would you pray for me on a regular basis? Um, But it doesn't stop there because most of us should also have that role in someone else's life. We should have some Timothys. We should have some folks that we are serving and we're pouring into their lives, and we're praying for on a regular basis. Um, that's the model uh, of discipleship that we see early in the life of the church. Um, and it seems to have done better than our um, 80% failure rate that we're seeing right now in the church today. Um, so uh, the priority of passing on the baton of faith is huge. Um, and if I said probably the first thing to do is start praying about that. Uh, Pray about what it looks like. Who have you been entrusted with? Um, Who could be there? Who could pour into you? Um, Just to have that on your radar, you'll be surprised who comes to mind, who you might run into, uh, who God prepares a conversation with. Um, And then the second thing, as as Paul is thinking about passing on the baton, um, okay, I wrote, don't fumble the exchange. And I'm going to step away from the pulpit and just speak as a football fan. <laughs> I know that we don't want to fumble, and I know that, that might be a sore spot. Um, we had some Kentucky fans at the last service. It was a really sore spot for them. And just if you are disheartened about uh, the football game last night, I'm going to say this. I'm going to come back to the sermon. This is just a little, <laughs> just free. Um, I was actually super encouraged by the Georgia football game last night. Here's why. Um, we used to always lose games that we should have won. And we've gotten to the point now we're going to win games we should lose. That's amazing. <laughs> we should be super encouraged by that. Um, all right, back to the sermon. Um, don't fumble the exchange. Um, as Paul thinks about this process of, of the faith being passed on, he's going to actually lean into, okay, what is it that we're passing? What is this baton? What is... Uh, the gospel. Um, again, he's encouraging Timothy and his leadership. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says, the first letter warned Timothy, hey, don't let people look down on you uh, because you're young. 
Uh, Paul actually told the Corinthians, hey, don't regard Timothy as junior or inferior. He had to run interference for Timothy and his leadership. He reminds him, hey, the spirit which is at work in you is the Holy Spirit. And he says, God's spirit is given to equip you for service. It's not a spirit of fearfulness or timidity, but a spirit of love and power and prudence or self-control. Um, I actually find that very interesting because um, we usually think of power and love being separate. But he says there's a sense in God's economy where these can be actually together in a way that is holy and helpful. He says, you've been given something. You've got to rekindle it or you've got to stoke the fire of that and guard the deposit of faith. And by the way, Timothy, um, it might get really bad. He says, you, you might be called to share in suffering. You might be called to share in shame. Um, to the extent that we could assume, Paul would think you might be called to share in martyrdom uh, for the faith. And do we have a faith that could withstand such things? Um, verses 8 through 10, he says, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Uh, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Then I love this phrase, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul has devoted his life to this. He is willing to die for this. He is clinging to this hope. He is clinging to the idea that Jesus in his death and resurrection actually conquered death because he's facing it. He's about to die himself. And he's going to find out, do I really believe this? <laughs> um, he's thinking of eternal matters and he wants to make sure that Timothy is not ashamed of the gospel. He goes, this is the power of God unto salvation. And he wants to make sure, this is interesting. He, he says that I don't want you to be ashamed of the gospel um, or of me. Isn't that interesting? After all they had been through, Paul and Timothy, there's a worry that Timothy is going to somehow turn from Paul or turn uh, from his legacy and that, that makes sense if we just think about it for a moment. I mean, Paul's in prison. Uh, Paul's about to die for his faith. You could imagine um, there's false teachers running amok. In Ephesus, there are self-interested leaders all over the place. Um, can you just assume or imagine that they would say, do you want to end up like him? Are you really going to follow Paul? Look at where it got him. Landed him in prison. Ended up being martyred for his faith. Uh, there is shame and suffering with this way. Um, and again, I, I know we're in church, and so we have the benefit of a historical perspective. Um, and so we think of Paul in prison. We're like, man, he's a hero of the faith for being in prison. Um, we can think, I, mean, I was thinking even just recently of, of instances like uh, Nelson Mandela, um, in South Africa, or uh, Dr. King. He's in a Birmingham jail. We, we, we have this idea of uh, unjust imprisonment. Um, but I don't know. Uh, even then, there's a stigma attached with being imprisoned. Um, there's a suffering attached to being uh, in prison. 
Um, and I would just think that as you're going around trying to plant churches and see the gospel spread and say, we should trust what this guy says, that there's a stigma starting to form around Paul. Maybe he's taking it too far. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't understand how to really live uh, this life. Um, he keeps ending up in jail. Uh, jail after jail after jail. They're like, maybe you get in jail once. Might be a misunderstanding. You're in jail this much. I don't know. Something might be going on with this guy. And so you see people are critiquing uh, Paul. Actually, we don't have this, but verse 15 says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Folks are turning away from Paul because of his sufferings and beatings and imprisonments and Paul says, are you going to turn away too? Or are you going to share in suffering? Um, do you realize it could get really hard? It could get really bad. And the only thing that can anchor you through that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because if Paul's imprisonment uh, was shameful and was humiliating and there was a stigma attached to it, just think about <laughs> Jesus. There's nothing more shameful, nothing more offensive, nothing with uh, more of a stigma attached to it um, than crucifixion. Um, not just execution, but execution with a message. Um, and I just imagine that Paul is leaning on the only way he can make sense of what he's going through is to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That there's a pattern where shame and suffering may come, even death may come, and it doesn't have the last word. Because exaltation and victory come after that. Uh, Hebrews 12 reminds us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Philippians 2, uh, Paul in another letter puts it this way, being found in human form, he, Christ Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, uh, even death on a cross. Uh, for Paul, this is the way of his master. And he's following it unto the end. He's hopeful that death will not be the end. And he's rooted in this idea that the gospel brought life and immortality to light. He has nothing to fear. That for him, death will be the gateway to eternal life. And he's calling on Timothy to have that type of eternal uh, perspective. I think it's interesting that within a few verses of this very personal correspondence, Paul is already uh, just riffing on the gospel and the beauty and the glory of the gospel. It's like, do you see what Jesus did? Do you see what was accomplished by his death and resurrection? Do you see how we can participate in it? How we can actually experience life and immortality, how it's come to light how it's better than anyone or anything. And it can even anchor you through this kind of shame and suffering and hardship. Again, Paul is nearing the very end of his life. Uh, there's a level of clarity and perspective he has as he thinks about his ultimate hope that we can benefit from. Uh, the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, unveils and brings to light this new thing, this glorious, gracious plan of God to defeat death to defeat sin, to bring immortality to life. And that's what Paul is clinging to. That's what he tells Timothy to lash himself to. Uh, that's what Paul wants Timothy to never forget. Um, and we can be the beneficiaries of this as well. Because we're reminded of the great hope we have in Jesus.
We're reminded that we too can cling to this anchor of hope, that, that we can have life unimaginable with God and in Christ, a life that even death cannot end. And then like Paul and like Lois and like Eunice, we can prayerfully see who is God calling me to share that with and mold and shape and form and pour into their lives so that they would have the kind of faith to stand firm when trial and temptation and suffering come. Would you pray with me? O God, who by the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, grant that we who have been raised with him may abide in his presence and rejoice in the hope of eternal glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen.